Thanks, Sophie. Um, just to say that if you've got, particularly Eleanor, if she wants to get up and walk her around, uh, or if you feel you want to take her out, there's a crash at the back there. Do feel free to wander around. And that applies to everybody. If you want to stretch your legs while I'm speaking, that's fine. Um, and we're going to tackle this issue of fear for the future. And the first question I want to ask you is, are you an eco-warrior or are you an eco-warrior? Do you worry about what's happening or, and, or are you determined to fight uh, against it and to do something about it? It's been quite an interesting weekend, hasn't it? Uh, Greta Thunberg, the 16-year-old Swedish eco-activist who was obviously involved on Friday, she told Davos earlier this year that she wanted the people at Davos to panic, to feel the fear that she feels every day. And one of Britain's most eminent scientists, Sir David King, has just warned that we should be scared about the scale and pace of climate change. With reports that the Greenland ice cap is melting at the rate of 8,500 tons per second, and the Arctic at the rate of 100 square, sorry, 22,100 square miles a day, and that a two-meter rise in ocean levels is now virtually unstoppable, perhaps he's right. Professor Joe Hay from Imperial College London certainly thinks so. David, Wright is, David King is right to be scared, she said. I'm scared too. I reckon fear is a perfectly natural human emotion. And we tend to fear what we cannot control. And for them, and for many of those demonstrating all over the world on Friday, I suspect that's probably what's going on here. Maybe it applies to some of us here this morning. An old Jewish text says, start worrying, details to follow. <laughs> and in an age of anxiety, a misery-loving media is delighted to produce endless speculation and depressingly fearful headlines, like claims that we've just 15 years to save the planet from an existential crisis. The result is rising numbers of children being treated for eco-anxiety and asking what's the point of doing exams or going to university, and some couples deciding not to have any children anyway. Good to see that Eleanor's mum and dad didn't succumb to that idea. But of course, predicting Armageddon and the end of the world isn't new. Forty years or so ago, nuclear war was going to lead to global destruction. And maybe it still will. But one thing we do know for sure is that in a world of sound bites, political, economic and social forecasts are always wrong. And chasing the latest trend or overreacting to events is often, if not usually, counterproductive. The goalposts keep moving and the laws of unintended consequences kicks in. Encouraged to buy diesel cars a few years ago, we're now told not to buy them. And the drive to generate greener electricity is apparently resulting in large quantities of sulfur hexafluoride, SF6, widely used in the electricity industry, being released. SF6 just happens to be 23,500 times more warming than CO2. Despite being next door to several of France's nuclear plants, Germany's knee-jerk reaction to the Fukushima disaster to run down all its nuclear capacity led to a massive increase in dirty coal imported from the USA. 
In 2017, 37% of Germany's electricity came from coal, and it's by now, by far now, the Europe's largest coal consumer. And apparently, I didn't know this, I read it recently, cement production is, re is responsible for four times the amount of carbon dioxide emissions as, aviations, as aviation. Yet few seem to be bragging on social media about their resolve to live in tents. <laughs> this all said, and whilst Franklin Roosevelt said back in the 1930s, we have nothing to fear but fear itself, nonetheless, it is pretty clear, obviously, that something bad is happening. The economy is really just a wholly owned subsidiary of the environment. And the environment is starting to send back invoices for all that we've been up to over the last century or so. And any visitor from outer space would surely take one look at what was happening to the Earth and ask to see the manager. So how do we Christians approach it all? The Secretary General of the World Meteorological Organization recently urged people to stick to the facts. Good advice, because facts are stubborn things. But pinning down the facts is, of course, not easy. And this isn't just about climate change. Reports that 80 million could die in 36 hours as a result of a pandemic, or as Dame Sally Davis, England's chief medical officer, has warned, that the growing immunity to antibiotics could well kill us all off before climate change does, means there are plenty of other things for us to worry about. Dave Bookless, in his, in his book Planet Wise, Dare to Care for God's World, makes the point that climate change is but a symptom of a far bigger problem. And he asks the question that if we were to suddenly find a solution to absorbing all the excess greenhouse gases and the ice caps were no longer going to melt away and the sea levels were not going to expand or forests and coral reefs weren't going to be completely destroyed, would we then have a perfect world with no environmental problems? The answer is surely no. With a world population projected to reach around 9.5 billion by 2050, Unless things change, resources will still be overexploited, oceans overfished, countrysides continue to disappear under housing developments and mountains of waste, agricultural land continue to be degraded through intensive farming methods, dangerous pesticides and chemicals will still cause huge problems to our ecosystems and human health, and untold numbers of species of wildlife will still be driven to extinction as human populations continue to sprawl into their habitats. The simple reality is that humanity has got our relationship with the Earth all wrong, and we cannot continue this way. We have to rethink how we treat the planet and all its occupants, and to rethink who we are as human beings. And stepping back from the emotionally charged assertions and statistics, we Christians need to understand and present the facts about what the Bible has to say about creation and the reality of sin. As I've said here before, the motto of the UK's parachute school is knowledge dispels fear. And our knowledge is rooted in our Christian faith, which offers hope for the future rather than despair. And we should be bold in declaring that hope. So what I want to do today, in this, the third week of our four-week series, is to explore something of what the Bible has to say about all of this. 
And Anne is going to start us off by coming to read to us from Paul's letter to the church in Colossae, chapter 1, verses 15 to 23. Anne. Yes, starting at um, verse 15, which it can be found on page 1182 of the Church Bibles. The supremacy of the Son of God. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation, if you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven, and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Anne. Let's just uh, have a word of prayer. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the completeness of it. Thank you for the the way that it describes and educates us and tells us what it is that is ground truth. And Lord, I pray that as we look at these issue or this issue of the environment, as we study your word, that you would help us all to leave this place better understanding, firmly rooted in your truth and hope, and go out into the world and to serve you better. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Now, the most famous verse in the Bible, of course, is, or one of the most famous verses, is certainly Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The opening verses in Hebrews chapter 11, which is on the screen, says this. Now, faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. By faith, we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what is visible. This means that everything in creation was made not out of any pre-existent material, but out of nothing. The divine Big Bang. Those who say that there's this, this uh, tension between science and, and uh, religion, particularly Christianity, need to read this verse. The divine Big Bang. Everything was created by God out of nothing. Nothing. 
And Ephesians chapter 4, verse 6 says that God is above all and through all and in all. And Revelation chapter 4 tells us that he has created all things. And by his will they were created and have their being. In other words, creation was a free act of God. He is independent of it. He stands outside of it and is distinct to it. He didn't need to create the universe. He chose to do it. And he didn't do it for us. Creation, as Calvin said, is the theater of his glory. And crucially, it is wholly dependent on his power for its continued existence. Psalm 102 says this, For unlike him, nothing inside creation is eternal. Nothing inside creation is eternal. In the beginning, says the psalm, you laid the foundations of the earth. The heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will wear out like a garment. Like clothing, you will change them, and they will be discarded. But you will remain the same. And your years will never end. This work of creation is referred to throughout the Old and the New Testaments. First, of course, in Genesis chapter 1. But then in many places in Isaiah, in Jeremiah, in the Psalms, Job, Nehemiah, Acts, Romans, to name but a few. Lift your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all these things? He who brings out the starry host one by one and calls them each by name. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. This is what the Lord says, your Redeemer who formed you in the womb. I am the Lord who made all things. It is I who made the earth and created mankind upon it. My own hands stretched out the heavens. I marshaled their starry hosts. But God made the whole earth by his power. He founded the world by his wisdom and stretched out the heavens by his understanding. Genesis describes what some call the primary creation, the cosmos, as on the picture, and then the secondary creation, everything here on earth, including us when we were given stewardship and lordship over everything else. But that was followed quickly in the Old Testament as we read through it. The Old Testament prophets who were clearly concerned for the welfare of the earth. Micah chapter 6, Isaiah chapter 1, Amos chapter 4, the later chapters of Isaiah, the portions of the Psalms, all established links between human sinfulness and the health and well-being of nature. And as much as anything else, the New Testament describes Jesus coming to recreate all that was lost in Eden. The so-called nature miracles, such as the calming of the storm, demonstrate his power over creation. And God's kingdom, as proclaimed by Jesus, is a vision which includes all aspects of the planet and looks forward to God's ultimate redemption of the created order. And it's all too easily forgotten that Jesus Christ was born into this world. He didn't come from it. 
The Holy Spirit was obviously present in the Genesis story, the Spirit of God hovering over the waters. But Jesus is also present. In John chapter 17, he himself says, And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. And in Hebrews chapter 1, we read, But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he made the universe. Jesus didn't emerge out of history. He came into history from the outside. He's not a man who became God. He is God incarnate. God coming in human flesh from outside humanity. And as our reading from Colossians chapter 1 reveals, in verse 16, he is the source of creation. By him all things were created. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, all things were created by him and for him. Verse 17, he's the sustainer of creation. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And in verse 20, he is the saviour of creation. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. It's God's creation. And Christ is the source of that creation and its sustainer and its savior through the cross. Now these, these are extraordinary claims. But as Christians we need to grasp the truth of them if we're to have the confidence for the future and not be fearful. But they're so extraordinary we find it difficult to put it into words, don't we? We sang the songs of worship that Roddy and the team led us in earlier on. And we try to think through what it looks like, this creation that God brought about and our part in it. We, we sing words of worship and we give him praise and we want him to be part of our lives and so on. But it's really difficult, I think, to get our minds around this. God created the universe from nothing. And Christ sustains it and redeems it. And it is in him that we, it's the reason we come here today. It's the reason we worship him. It's the reason we bow before him, not understanding the power and the majesty. It's what the scriptures tell us from beginning to end. All too often, we see Jesus as just some sort of nice guy or an influential role model, and we fail to comprehend the full extent of who he actually is. It's only in genuinely understanding the enormity of what the Gospels tell us that we find genuine hope as opposed to just pleasant, wishful thinking. It's that hope which can be such a powerful witness in a world characterized by polarization and by fear. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, Jesus comes to transform lives transform relationships, culture, society. We need have neither any regrets of the past nor any fears for the future. Of course, it's difficult not to, be, not to succumb to fear 
when we can see around us so much that is frightening. But we need to remember that God is not phased by the turbulence of what we are witnessing. And if we can adopt a posture that follows his lead, we as Christians can be powerful witnesses amongst the storm around us. Powerful witnesses of peace and hope and grace and mercy. Now, this all said, I want to stress that it isn't good enough, as some Christians profess, to just sit back in disinterest with the, with, with the view that because the present world order is to be destroyed at the time of the second coming anyway, with a new heaven and a new earth, we don't have to worry too much about the fate of the environment in the meantime. To be pretty brutal about it, that just doesn't hack it. But nor do we need to become earth worshippers or druids or join Extinction Rebellion or the global climate strike. So what do we do? Well, I think we simply start by asking God and each other in the conversations that hopefully this series is opening up, and I know that some of them are because I've had some myself with people and Sophie's had lots of feedback. We ask God and each other what it is that we should actually do individually and collectively. And I have to say, whatever our circumstances, I suspect the answer involves more than just simply buying reusable tea or coffee cups. Because as Sophie and Jeff talked about in the first two sessions of this series, this is a matter of global justice and righteousness. So we should all indeed think about our own lifestyles, recycling, the efficient use of energy, the merits of traveling by public transport rather than by car, get environmental matters on the agenda of our local businesses, our schools, our councils, as well as make known our concern to MPs and government ministers. But we do all of those things, and more, set within the context that we worship the Creator, not creation. And that Jesus Christ came to rebuild the relationship between humanity and the Creator. That the whole world is indeed in His hands. We do them in the sure and certain knowledge that through Christ, the creation lost in the Garden of Eden can and will be restored. That in Christ, we Christians are a new creation. That's what the word tells us. We are born again. The old has gone. The new has come. In other words, through the cross, we find the hope that enables us not to be afraid. So eco-warrior or eco-warrior? Maybe a bit of both. But the command to be salt and light in the world, salt to both preserve what is good and to add flavor and distinctiveness, and light to shine in a world that is all too often far too dark for truth and goodness to be seen, holds firm today as much as ever. And the more challenging the context, the more important the Christian witness, as in this issue of the environment. So let's go out and do our bit, but not driven by fear, but by a deep desire to serve the Creator and help keep His creation in good order and discipline until the time comes when Christ does indeed return and all things will become new. Amen.